This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create positive change in the world every day by being a conscious consumer. I'm your host, Laura Alexandra Wittig, founder of Brightly.eco, and I started this podcast a few years ago because I wanted a place to talk about the gray areas around sustainability and how being a conscious consumer can be challenging and confusing but it's totally doable. So join me in the name of reducing waste and living positively in the name of the planet. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good Together listeners, I am really excited to talk to our guest today because as we think more and more about what's going on in the world around us, the topic of renewable energy is constantly coming up. People have so many opinions about different sources um, and you know, one that I personally don't know a lot about is hydropower. Um, and so the person who does know a lot about hydropower is Dr. Melissa Lott, who's on the podcast with us today. Um, so Dr. Lott is internationally recognized for her research and contributions to the global energy sector. I mean, she's worked as an engineer and an advisor for nearly 20 years in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Um, she is now the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. Um, and her goal is really to, um, you know, increase our understanding of energy systems and their impact on the environment and public health. Um, and, you know, eventually she'd love to see us transition to net zero energy systems like hydropower. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the chat today. Yes. Um, so I wonder if you could just uh, start us off by uh, introducing yourself and giving um, the audience a little bit more um, information about your background. Yeah. So my background is one of those where I started just back when I was a teenager, really looking at sustainability. What does that mean? What did it mean to me? And when I looked at my community, my father was in the military stationed in Monterey, California. You've got the Monterey Bay Canyon right there. And you think about how do we take care of this beautiful, rare natural resource? Like, what does that mean? And I started running into the answer to my question, coming back to the energy system. And what this meant was when I thought about the solutions, the things to how do we protect the things we care about? How do we have a sustainable future? And how do we have a healthy future? 
So often the answer lied in how we produce electricity, how we produce fuels for our cars and our trucks, and for the industry that produces all the things that we're wearing that we're using in our everyday lives. So from there, it's been uh, yeah, nearly 20 years <laughs> of working around the world on issues and, and asking the question about how do we get to a sustainable, affordable, reliable future energy system that can really support our environment and ourselves being healthy? I love that. And, you know, as we're recording this podcast, um, it's it, we're in March still, um, and it's mm-hmm. Women's History Month. And I think it's so important for women especially to understand the variety of environmental-related careers sort of at our fingertips. And I think when most people, um, you know, think about, okay, I'm going to be involved with the environment, there's a, just a few, a handful of things that come to mind for people. But I, I love that you in your own thought process around wanting to, you know, save the planet as it were kind of, uh, you know, stumbled and, and really, um, not really stumbled upon, I would say really decided on, um, energy as a sector to focus on. And at what made you choose energy, I guess, over being a zoologist or something like that? <laughs> yeah. What's well, interesting. I mean, maybe stumble is the right way to, to, to say it happened in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't grow up in an energy family. I used energy. I grew up in a family of engineers and photographers, artists, lawyers, just a really diverse group of people, but no one who was working directly, at least in my immediate family, like in the energy industry. So I switched on the lights and they came on and I filled up my car once, you know, I had a driver's license and all that with gasoline or diesel and, you know, it got me where I wanted to go, but it wasn't something that was right at the forefront of kind of my awareness until I was studying a in New Zealand. And this was pre-Lord of the Rings days, but I'd seen pictures of the place. It looked gorgeous. And I thought about, you know, learning more about engineering in an international space and New Zealand's just where I wanted to go. And so I went and studied in Christchurch and the the trade-off for my New Zealand educational experience was I had to work on a project for the New Zealand government Mm. on renewable energy and how that country could transition. So that's I mean, that's how it happened. And I will say yeah. by the end of that project, I was hooked because I saw all these connections that I didn't know existed until that moment. And I went, wait, these are the tools. Yeah. Like, this is actually the t- set of tools, the toolbox full of options that I need to help solve and support positive solutions and progress and the things I deeply care about. I love that. And I mean, you know, it, it is so funny how we end up getting into our different lines of work. But, um, you know, my um, I'm interested to hear that you're you're in the military, your family's in the military background. Uh, my husband was a um, submarine officer um, nice. for many years. And so I probably know more than I'd like to about uh, nuclear energy, mm-hmm, <laughs> or at absolutely. least his version of it. Um, but I think kind of Thinking more about your, um, you know, specialty over here, um, you know, specifically hydropower. I'm really curious to learn a little bit more, especially when, you know, we're in a situation right now where some parts of the world are, you know, uh, actually getting drenched with water. I actually saw um, a viral tweet right now um, of the amount of water that can't be contained in certain reservoirs in California because of how much rain's coming down. Um, so we're kind of in a situation where there's areas of the world that have so much water. There's areas of the world mm-hmm. that don't have enough. Um, and I think the the underlying current of all these things relies on um, the fact that we need to better manage the water that we do have. So I feel like hydropower is a great place to start, right? Can you Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say one thing on the 
the naval nuclear fleet. Um, I will say Admiral Rickover and that whole history is yes. it was dinner table conversation for us. It just was something <laughs> that came up, you know, something that it was, but I didn't, I thought of it differently, as you say, their version of nuclear. But when yeah. it comes to hydropower, I came across hydropower first when I was learning about the different ways we make electricity. And if we back up for a minute, Hydropower has a lot of different functions it plays. So it helps us to manage our water resource. And I think often, actually, the power, the electricity that we get from it is kind of a bonus because we might build a dam or, you know, construct some kind of system around a waterway to prevent flooding, let's say. And then we're like, wow, we have all this water. It has all this potential energy in it. How do we harness that and actually yeah. use it for good? And so hydropower, like the highest level, is just using water and the flow of water to produce electricity that then, you know, turns on the lights in our homes, charges our computers and our phones. Well, I mean, it to me, it's so funny because it it's one of those things that's almost like uh, deceivingly simple, <laughs> yeah. you know, like where we're like, well, why aren't we doing this more? And so maybe we can start there. I mean, like why, you know, maybe a little bit more about the history behind um, you know, folks using the, the flow of water to generate electricity and maybe a little bit more about, you know, how, why we haven't started to do more of this. Yeah. So when you look at the history of hydropower and just using water to do work, I guess is a, a really mm-hmm. better way to say it, at least in terms of its early days. I mean, we use water to do work when you think about milling different projects or cutting yeah. lumber, just spinning wheels with flowing rivers is something that we've done for a long time as a you know human society. We have yeah. done that. It's only been more recently that we have actually started using water to turn a turbine to convert that energy into electricity, which does work for us in a different way, you know, which does a lot of tasks in a different way. And so when we think about hydropower, it's actually one of the oldest and also largest sources of renewable energy um, in the world. And it currently accounts for something like a third of U.S. renewable electricity generation um, and 6% overall of total U.S. electricity generation. Uh, That was going to be my next question. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What does that end up uh, netting out? Interesting. Okay. Absolutely. And I will say that it's not growing a ton in the United States. It has some potential to grow, but there's a couple of different reasons why. And that comes back to actually, what do I mean when I say taking water and using that energy in it to produce electricity? Like what what does that actually mean? And it can mean broadly uh, two things that we might expand this in the future. The first thing it might mean is actually building what we might classically think about with hydropower, which is a big dam where we block or, or put a big concrete structure in the middle of a flowing waterway. And then we put some turbines in it and we let the water flow out in a controlled manner. Um, And when it flows through, it actually spins the turbine, generates electricity. In the meantime, it creates often a lake at the top of it. And that lake we might use for recreation. We water ski on it. We go swimming, Mm -hmm. fishing, all of those things. Um, And then the flow of water we control often when we think about flood control. So that's what we do. The other way that we can use hydropower is actually something called run a river, where instead of blocking the water and controlling it in a very large way, we actually put like turbines that can spin just in the flow of the river. We don't stop the river. We just put things in the middle of it and say, you know, I'm going to not control the flow of water. I'm just going to allow it to do some work for me. And it generates electricity in that way. And that's, that's really common in parts of the world as well. That's so interesting. I mean, I, that was actually going to be a question of mine, which is, I think, 
you know, when people picture, I guess, like traditional hydropower, like thinking of dams, like I feel like most of us have seen a dam in our lifetime. And, you know, to me, what always stood out was just obviously the scale of them, <laughs> but also like how, you know, potentially disruptive they are to the world around them when you start to, you know, channel water in ways that it hadn't been happening before. So I've actually never heard of that second, um, you know, version of this where it's just basically like, Hey, let's, let's um, use the the power of the river altogether. And I would imagine it typically has a much a smaller impact, impact on the environment. Correct. Yeah. So any of these technologies will impact the environment and it comes down to making sure we understand the impacts that are having, try to minimize them yeah. whenever possible and, and find workarounds so that the impacts aren't going to seriously disrupt the ecosystem. But yes, I mean, overall, you're not building a huge concrete structure and really fundamentally changing like the flow of a river. You are using the water that's flowing already or using the energy that's there. And so there's impacts, but they're different and generally less. Makes total sense. Well, hey, um, I, I think I find that to be extremely interesting. So um, when we think about, you know, hydropower in general, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about like the benefits of, of hydropower. Like, I think we can all understand the like the, the face level value benefits, which is, you know, we're not, you know, consuming, um, you know, fossil fuels to generate uh, electricity, et cetera. But I'm curious to know if there's other, um, you know, interesting benefits of it. Yeah. So one of the things that I'll say with hydropower generally is in the case where we're already building a dam, it's kind of like a great co-benefit or bonus. You know, it's like, hey, bonus, yeah. we were baking this dam so that we could actually, you know, prevent seasonal flooding in an area or more effectively irrigate crops or, or whatever it is that the purpose of it was. And then we say, you know what, if we're going to build this thing, it makes a lot more sense to get electricity out of it too. Yeah. You know, not just build the dam, but build the dam in a way that provides us with this co-benefit. So it's really nice in that way. I'll say that in general, hydropower, what it is, is it's something that we call firm, dispatchable, clean electricity. So the clean is relatively self-evident in the sense of you're not producing air pollution, you're not really producing greenhouse gas emissions, though, of course, when you dam a river, you are burying lots of trees and lots of, you know, different, um, you know, types of organic products and they do decompose over time. So there are some impacts, but they're really, as you said, a lot less than, let's say, the equivalent of electricity if you were using natural gas or coal or something like mm. that. Um, the other thing, when I say firm and dispatchable, that's just a fancy way of saying, a really uh, nerdy technical way of saying that it's around 24-7, 365. And so as okay. long as you have water above your dam, and you do have to think about prolonged droughts, and there's all kinds of conversation we can have there, but what it does is it provides electricity whenever you need it. So if the wind dies down, or the sun sets, or for some other reason, another thing that's in your electricity system isn't producing electricity in a moment, hydropower can be there and it can act as like a really big water battery. Well, from my perspective, you know, there, were, there was a question that I had on my list to ask you and you almost answered it, but I'm sure you probably have other, you know, <laughs> other answers to it. But the, the question was really, uh, what made you pick 
hydropower over some of these other versions of renewable energy to really be a champion of. And to me, it almost comes down to that answer that you just gave, which is, you know, it's, it is 24 seven. We're not reliant on, you know, some of those other factors like you mentioned. And so I'm curious, was that really the the thing that really made you say, this is the one that I'm going to go with, or <laughs> um, are there other benefits or uh, maybe you just love water? <laughs> just <being silly. laughs> so, um, you know, there's, <laughs> My family's from Texas. I'm a sixth generation Texan. And then also my father well, was stationed. I'm not station. sixth generation, oh, nice. but I'm from Texas. Nice. How fun. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, we think about water a lot, <laughs> like yes. a lot. Yes. because and, and we're not the only ones. It's so key and crucial in so many conversations, you know, in our daily lives, like water is essential. And my father was stationed in California multiple times. So our whole family ended up, you know, effectively being stationed there. And remember the first time when I was a kid, moving to California and learning what low flow shower heads were and what a three minute shower with a low flow shower head was like, you know, Mm -hmm. as a kid baths, what, you know, um, swimming pools, some of the year, but you know, like all the different considerations, just being very aware of water. But I will say is that I am not, I would not say that I'm a proponent of any one technology. I am more looking at what is zero carbon electricity that's affordable and reliable look like? What do we need? Mm -hmm. And actually the answer is it's a team sport and we need a lot of different technologies, but in the firm dispatchable, the 24, seven, 365, you know, bucket of tools, there's only a few tools really in there. When you look at a clean, zero carbon, affordable, reliable future, there's nuclear power, there's hydropower, there's geothermal, Maybe there's fossil fuels with carbon capture, if we can figure out those technologies, but there's not a lot in that bucket. And hydropower, where you already have that resource, is an important one to consider how it plays into the overall, you know, game on the field. Yeah. And as you, as we were talking about Texas and, and thinking about that, it brought up another thought that I have, which is, so, you know, it sounds to me like this type of, um, you know, electricity and, and that type of, I'm sorry, that this type of electricity generation is available to folks, you know, around the world. But what about people that are living in areas that might not have um, a large water source? I mean, is there, are there, you know, ways that they're able to, you know, use this um, technology in creative ways? Or are there other different, um, you know, renewable uh, resources that you would recommend um, them using? So when we talk about hydropower, we're, you know, talking about the technologies we've already touched on, like big dams and run of river. And these are the technologies we often think about when we talk about hydropower. But really, there's a couple of different things that we can think about beyond that. So there's really exciting innovations and investments going on. And how do we use our oceans? How do we think about tidal power? How do we think about wave power? How do we think about the energy that we can harness from the movements within our oceans? And then even on land, so away from our oceans, how do we think about the next generation of something we call pumped storage. So that's really a way of describing a water battery is what I'll call it. So today we'll take cheap electricity at night as an example, and we'll pump it up a hill and we'll hold on to it there. And then when electricity is expensive during another time of day, we'll let it flow down, flow down that hill and then generate electricity. And I've seen some really nifty concepts about saying, hey, if all I need is an elevation change, what about using an abandoned mine that's underground that fills up with water and I pump that water to the surface and then I let it flow down a different time of day. There's just different ways to think about how we use water, which is all around us in different forms. Yeah. I mean, and and to me, the way that you, um, you know, so accurately put like 
this is all, it's all about movement, I think is so interesting. Because if you think about it that way, well, then we can start to draw parallels to things like wind turbines and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, just various, uh, you know, other forms of renewable energy. And you're right, they're all about movement. So from my perspective, um, that was kind of a, a cool, I don't know, just like a nice mental image. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, And so, you know, I guess we've talked a lot about the positives, um, you know, uh, around this type of, um, you know, energy, um, you know, and and this type of um, mechanics. Uh, But I'm curious to know a little bit more about like, are there negatives behind hydropower? And if so, like, what are those? So, I mean, absolutely every single technology we talk about has a trade-off. And and what it comes down to is how do we mitigate the downside, you know, maximize positives, minimize the negatives, that type of conversation. Um, and that applies to hydropower. It applies to everything. So that's one thing that as we talk about how we get to net zero, how we mitigate climate change, it's not a trade-off less future. It's just a different set of trade-offs. So when we talk about hydropower, we've you mentioned some of them. So you build a huge dam and you can upset an ecosystem. So a couple different things. Um, we've seen examples. So I remember all the conversations around the Three Gorges Dam in China, which is absolutely massive, and how the creation of that dam flooded some towns, displaced some people, but also you know buried a lot of you know buildings and structures and trees and other parts of an ecosystem and altered it. We also talk often about dams and things like salmon ladders. So actually, when we think about fish being able to reproduce, how do we create systems so that when we're putting a big structure in the middle of it, that we are allowing, you know, the the animals, the plants, the people that were in those areas to continue on. So in the case of mm. salmon, how do we make sure that they can still swim upstream and still reproduce? Like, how do we do that? Yeah. And so we have some solutions um, that can help us to mitigate that, but we have to think about it. And I'll say we've learned a lot over the many, many decades at this point that we've had dams producing power in our energy systems. And so it's about applying those learnings. Yeah. I mean, and I was going to say, there's never, there's, we never have a conversation on this podcast without there being a conversation about trade-offs because unfortunately there's nothing, you know, there's really no perfect solution to anything regarding, um, you know, climate change mitigation or, you know, reduction of carbon emissions, there's always going to be trade-offs. But I think it's interesting to consider not only that there are, you know, things that we can do to maybe mitigate some of these um, effects, but there's also, you know, a role to to play in regulation and, and making sure that governments are involved. And so that kind of gets me to one of my last questions for you around, you know, you know, policies, maybe specifically here in the United States, like, would you say that there are any areas of the country that are paying more attention to this type of um, technology and or like do you do you find that we've had any positive um, conversation about, um, you know, all of these things on a national level? Yeah, so I think there's certainly some actions that we've taken really recently in the Inflation Reduction Act and others that actually can have big impacts on hydropower or significant impacts on hydropower. I think that in the United States, for the most part, are on land kind of the big dams type of hydropower. We've developed a lot of that. And so the question is, are we going to, you know, improve those dams? Are we going to replace turbines, upgrade those dams so they can produce more electricity? You know, are we going to decommission some of them? You know, so back to trade-offs, like, do we keep the existing facilities we have and do we have them produce more electricity over time or 
do we not? You know, these types of questions. But what I'll say in terms of regulations, there's a really key point with hydropower, and this is, just goes back to one of the trade-offs that we have to think about. And that's if in the face of a changing climate, where and when and how our rainfall patterns occur is changing, that has a direct impact on hydropower. And yes. so when we look at the planning of our electricity systems, we might think often about, oh, well, a fossil fuel power plant needs you know, water to cool itself. Same with a nuclear power plant. So water is really important in those cases. Well, in the case of hydropower, it's the fuel. If you don't have it, you end up in a tough spot. And some countries have already struggled with this and continue to struggle with this. New Zealand's an example of it. They get 70% rough numbers of their electricity from hydropower in different forms. And they have these dry year cycles that can last many years. And what happens when you don't have a lot of rain for several years in a row, when you don't have the snowpack and all of that, well, you don't have the fuel you need to actually produce the electricity you need. And so you have yeah. to be able to come in with other resources. And so in terms of policy, you know, we might want to focus on incentives for it, but actually planning for the future system that we're going to have and the future needs we're going to have is really, really important. And what that means is requiring our energy planning models, so the ways that we plan where a new power plant's going to go, and also our climate models, which talk about what the weather's going to look like in a few years and what rainfall patterns are going to look like, that they actually talk to each other and interact. And this is just one of the ways that, you know, we can really improve how we're planning things out. Yeah. And the, one of the things that jumped out to me or, you know, a thought as you were mentioning this was, I personally feel like the way we govern here is very reactionary <laughs> rather than future thinking. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious to know, like, are these conversations being had? Like, is this something where people are saying, look, we need to get ahead of the problem versus, oh, wait, we have to backtrack a lot. So I think that there are some conversations that are starting. Um, and within that, I can just say here in the United States is one example, the New York Power Authority in the Northeast, they announced, oh goodness, a year and a half ago or so, the uh, project that they're doing in partnership with Argonne National Laboratories, who have some great... Um, electricity planning models, and then also climate models, so energy and climate models, they said, hey, can you integrate the two and let's look at what kind of risks we are facing in the future so that we can plan taking that into account. And if you look outside of energy, you know, energy has the benefit of being able to learn from other industries, for example, cell phone networks. There's a great study that was looking at Florida and the Southeastern Corridor saying, you know, with all these big storms that are coming through with these big hurricanes, how do we design our cellular networks to actually be able to keep communications going so people can talk, get help, communicate with their loved ones in the face of these big storms. And it's the same thing, putting together models that didn't normally talk to each other and saying, okay, we have to, we have to make them talk because one influences the other. So I see a lot of positive things happening in the space. Over time in the future, I think that this is just going to become kind of par for the course. Like everyone does it. Of course you consider this and you look at what the next 50 years will look like as opposed to basing all your planning off the last 50 years. Yeah. And I, I'm so excited for that, that to happen. I do think that, you know, as we are, you know, different generations are now able to vote and are, are thinking more about more and more about these issues. I'm excited for us to push our policymakers to become, you know, more proactive in some of these conversations, because mm -hmm. I, I personally, um, you know, can't wait for us to be in a future where we have 
many more sources of renewable energy available to us, regardless of where we live in the country <laughs> or really mm-hmm. in the world. Um, so, you know, we've had such an amazing conversation. We typically keep these episodes about this long. And so unfortunately, I'm going to have to uh, wrap things up, but I do really enjoy asking our um, guests the same question um, at the, you know, uh, you know, at the conclusion of our episodes. And so the question for you, uh, Melissa, is what is exciting you the most about what you're witnessing going on in the sort of ethical and sustainable lifestyle movement going on? I think what excites me the most is how quickly I have seen change. So I'll explain what I mean by that just a little bit more, which is that I've been doing this for about 20 years. About eight years ago, I wrote out, you know, in my lab notebook journal where I thought we'd be in 15 years, you know, and I was being so optimistic at the time about where I thought the conversation would go, what progress I thought we would see, what milestones I think we would have reached. And I even wrote at the bottom, I'm probably being incredibly optimistic pie in the sky, you know, all that stuff. But you know what? I don't care. I'm going to be optimistic. Well, eight years later, we've done every single one of the things on that list and then some. And climate, sustainability, ESG, these things are part of a conversation now in rooms where they were, you you didn't hear these phrases. They weren't a part of the conversation. They weren't a seat at the table. And I find that really exciting, like that it is progressed so quickly And I'm deeply excited to see what we do over the next eight years, 15 years, 20, 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And I know that, you know, our audiences in particular are just very excited to understand more about ways they can get involved. And so it sounds to me like, you know, now that we're all aware of this new, well, not really new, but maybe new to us uh, type of um, power generation. Again, listeners, I highly encourage everybody to you know, be aware of where your electricity and your energy is coming from in your local area. Um, And, you know, possibly learning more about, um, you know, your local dam or reservoir. Um, And also just remembering that, um, you know, the the knowledge that you, you you know, get on this podcast is something that's fun to talk about with folks. Um, So, Melissa, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us. Um, We will have links to all of the resources in our show notes. Um, But thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate the time. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social media. You'll find us on almost everything at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.